Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today's topic, the Cold War. With the end of World War II and the defeat of fascism, a new world order was established. The Americans and their European democratic capitalist allies controlled Western Europe, while the Soviet Union and its communist allies held the East. As communism spread deeper into Asia, Korea became a flashpoint battleground in the 1950s. Although the fighting happened between North and South Korea, the two superpowers providing men and material, the conflict, however, was the openly violent smaller segment of a much larger Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Both countries used the world as a chessboard of espionage and subversion, each country attempting to gain the upper hand in a race for global dominance. That international story was the stage upon which our guest today was an important player. In 1954, Mr. Robert Jones was just 21 years old, but already an experienced spy for the American National Security Agency. His missions frequently brought him to Europe, where he was tasked with gathering information about America's allies as well as its enemies. Mr. Jones has recorded his incredible story in a short book titled Room 204, Story of a Cold War Spy. Mr. Jones, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Glad to be here. My co-host today is Dr. Barry Gidcombe, who also joins us in the studio. Good morning, Dr. Gidcombe. Good morning, Tom. Mr. Jones, you were born in Davidson County, and we're going to get to the spy stuff, because that's what everybody wants to hear. But I, I want to get a little bit of your background, if I might. So you were born in Davidson County, Tennessee, in 1933, in the midst of the Great Depression. You came from modest beginnings? Yes, certainly did, Tom. Uh I, most of the stories that I remember came from my siblings, my older sibling. I was a baby of eight and growing up right in the middle of the Depression. What did your father and do for a living? He was a blacksmith, uh, worked for the NC in St. L Railroad, uh, uh, off and on during the Depression between layoffs and so forth. So t- he, time's tough. Uh, eight, eight children, eight mouths to feed. Uh, and he, he's working as a blacksmith as he can. He, he yes. was also a product, if I remember from your book, of some of the New Deal uh, programs, the uh, Works Progress Administration, for instance. Yes, uh, WPA. Uh, he, uh, from Dr. President Roosevelt, he got uh, hired there, I believe, making like 30, 35 cents an hour, and he helped lay a lot of the rock in, the, in, in what is now known as Percy Warner Park, I believe, throughout Nashville, where the uh, horse Iroquois races and all the help. Right, right. Uh, your family moved to Murray County when you were about seven years old. I was in the second grade, that's correct. What What brought your family here? Uh, a job that my father had at Victor, at the old Victor Chemical Company, a phosphate company, that he had worked there about two years before moving our family to, to Mount Pleasant. And your father wasn't the only one working. You you mentioned in your book that you had an awful lot of jobs as a kid growing up. How old oh, when you, were you when you got started working, and and what were some of the jobs? Well, that you a lot had? of lot of lot of my jobs were were right at the house uh, as a younger child. In the age nine, ten years old, we uh, we had no electricity, no running water. 
and it was my my mother. I remember always washing uh, the clothes every Monday morning. It was my job to uh, to cut firewood, build a fire under the pots, and carry water from the from the well to the pots. And before school hours, before walking two and a half miles to school. And you were in Mount Pleasant going to school there, yes, right? Yes, living on Canaan Road in Mount Pleasant. Uh, you uh, delivered newspapers. Uh, After we moved to town, I did. Uh, I carried a lot of newspapers. Um, the Morning Tennessean and the, and the Banner in total. Then on Sunday morning, uh, not being a banner on Sunday, of course, I had about a, oh, 120, 25 papers to deliver on Sunday morning. Saturday morning was a big day when you carried your papers to Tennessean and then had to uh, go back and collect from all the customers. And uh, I, I collected, I believe it was like 25 cents a, a week for the, for, the, for the paper, Tennessean, seven papers a week. What, what could you get for 25 cents in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee? <laughs> uh, uh, after I collected on Saturday, I always went by a little... A little, I, I, my dad called it a beer joint. It really wasn't in my estimation. But uh, I always went in, and there was a, two or three pinball machines in there, and I always had to get me a Coke and a candy bar, uh, a nickel apiece. And uh, before walking back on across town, carrying my collection money back to Mr. Bob Hollins, who was manager of the, of the 10 CN and the Banner in the Mount Pleasant area. Um, most of the phosphate operations are gone now from Mount Pleasant. Can you describe what Mount Pleasant was like in the 1940s when, when so much of that was still going on? Was it a bustling town? How does it differ it, from today? It was a bustling town, and I remember well. Uh, on, on Sunday mornings particularly, uh, I had a second job, Tom. Uh, after carrying papers uh, throughout the week and on Sunday morning, I worked at a black uh, barbershop in Mount Pleasant, Shining Shoes. And I could make more money shining shoes in Mount Pleasant than I could carrying papers all week long. So, but uh, regardless, whatever happened, I had to be out of that barbershop and in Sunday school at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. Did you get to keep the money that you made, or were you helping out the family as much I as you could? I helped out the family. Yep. We were still struggling, trying to recover from debt and all from the Depression. So, yes, I, I, I helped the family. It's an amazing and, and different time. Um, so that brings us up to about 1940, 1941. In your book, you mentioned that your father and your family would sort of gather around, and your father would listen to a little crystal radio with headphones. It didn't have any speakers, and he would relay to your family what was being said. You remember Pearl Harbor? Yes, absolutely. We was it, we was in a, a three full room house, including an upstairs room. Uh, the family room where my mother and dad's bedroom was, that's where we all sat. That's where we had the one little fireplace to try to keep warm by. But I remember well, dad sitting over in the corner listening to the crystal radio with, with headsets on and uh, relaying to the family what was what had, had taken place at that time in, uh, on December the 7th, 1941. And my parents being so upset, they knowing then that uh, what was forthcoming to our family, and not just our family, but to our nation uh, at the very beginning of World War II. And, and as they suspected, I, we wound up with, with all my brothers and brother-in-law and uh, brother-in-laws uh, serving in service. How, how many of your brothers went? Uh, I had three brothers in service. Uh, one of them, because of physical problems, uh, was discharged early on, but the other two went on and 
and, and took a large, large part in the Second World War. One of them uh, uh, served in the Navy on the aircraft carrier Franklin and on the heavy cruiser of Pittsburgh. Uh, the Franklin was the most damaged uh, ship in the Second World War that stayed afloat. Big Ben. Uh, Big Ben, it sure was. Uh, one of my other brothers was a belly gunner on a B-17, and on their last flight before leaving the States, uh, going to England to be deployed into the war, he uh, had a busted eardrum and wasn't able to travel, go with his crew. And as it happened, uh, the the flew crew that he served on, the first flight over Germany, that whole crew was shot down and lost. So I guess that's a that was a God thing that uh, he was pulled from the flight. But right. And he just lived up to about two years ago, wow. died at the age 94. Wow, incredible. You, you graduated from Haylong High School, I sure assume? Did. Yeah, sure did. Yeah. In 1951. <laughs> with aspirations to be a mechanical engineer. Yes. What, yes. what got you interested in that? Uh, I guess following maybe somewhat of what my, my dad did, and he, he was a blacksmith and uh, could make anything out of steel and iron and, and all, and I guess it was just from him that I wanted to be a, a mechanical engineer. You were accepted and briefly attended Tennessee Polytechnic Institute, which today is known as Tennessee I Tech. I, I had worked uh, in the summers and all leading up to it, saved a little bit of money, and uh, uh, not knowing the cost of college, uh, yeah, I was in a big way to go off to Tennessee Tech and, and start classes, but soon after my first quarter at uh, Christmas break, I was out of money and and uh, didn't know what was going to happen, that I had no money to come back to school on, so... Uh, I joined the military at that time. And th- and that's where this I all... I thought I was needed better right then. Right. And, and that's where this all begins. Um, where was basic training for you? Fort Knox, Kentucky. And it began like any other enlisted man's military career, I suppose, right. at that point? I, I went into a infantry basic training, a 16-week course that was really, really tough. Uh, but I endured it. Uh, if it was not been for a black sergeant that uh, that that cautioned us through and took care of all us boys, I tell you, uh, he made men out of us in a hurry. An interesting turn of events, however, you're still in basic training, and your father gets a visit from an FBI agent. What what was what did uh, he want, and uh, how did your father react to that? My uh, uh, the mail that I received was always from my mother. She always wrote the letters. But in this particular case, I had a letter from my dad. I thought, well, I opened it up. Something must be going on. Uh, he simply told me that there had been an FBI agent in, in the Mount Pleasant area asking a lot of questions about me that he understood from his friends and other people told him that they had been questioned. And uh, he just said, Bob, is there something wrong in your life? Is there something going on that I need to know about? And I said, no, no. I wrote back and I said, no, Dad, uh, I, I have no cause. I have no reason to know that anything is happening. And uh, as it turned out a little bit later, it was I was being investigated and getting security clearances and so forth uh, to follow up on what I eventually went into was a national security agency serving as a spy. But a lot of training preceding that. Right. So did you have any idea at that point in time that the that you were being sort of looked at as a potential no no i did not uh uh the only thing i might could relate to tom would be that uh 
during my younger years, I was in the Boy Scout troop in Mount Pleasant, and my scout leader, Mr. Doug Spurlock, uh, was teaching us boys for a merit badge, Morse code. And, uh, and I was kind of fascinated just with the dots and the dashes and, and, and trying to put together a few little codes. So possibly that, that contributed to my, uh, in my testing and all that I went through it uh, when I first went into service that led to this. Right. Well, I hate to do it, but we're going to have to take a break. We'll be back in three minutes and 30 seconds on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hi, Terry Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. When you think of diamonds, what do you think of? Rare, precious, timeless, sparkles like the sun. They're timeless and nothing like them on earth. Then do you think, where do I buy local to buy the perfect ring? Maybe a diamond pendant or earrings or maybe a new diamond band. Look no further. Tillis Jewelry carries all your diamond and jewelry needs. Stop by and see our wonderful collection. And remember, if you don't know your diamonds, know your jeweler. Tillis Jewelry, downtown Columbia. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole barn. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me, painfree.com, or call 615-551-9224. Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. This message is from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Did you serve in the military? If so, you can obtain a free lifetime pass to more than 2,000 federal recreation sites, including national parks, 
wildlife refuges, and forests. Getting a pass is easy. Just go to the National Park Service website, nps.gov, or the National Park Service app. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Mr. Bob Jones, who is a spy for the National Security Agency during the Cold War. Uh, um, Mr. Jones, so you got through basic training, uh, sort of behind your back, the FBI is sort of uh, looking at test scores and and looking at you for the possibility of, of joining a new agency, which we'll, we'll talk about in just a, a second. But upon graduating from basic training, you and you alone out of your class were escorted to Langley, Virginia by a United States Marshal. Why were you picked? And what, if anything, did he tell you about what your next posting was going to be? Well, Tom, I don't really know why I was picked. But, uh, yes, I was the only one singled out out of my company of about 240 men that was going through basic. And uh, I was told to uh, report to the orderly room, which was a company office. And there I met uh, a United States Marshal who had orders to carry me, uh, transport me to uh, Langley, Virginia. So uh, we drove into Knox, into Louisville, Kentucky, and turned in his rented car and flew over to Washington and drove out that night, this being on a Saturday, to uh, Langley, Virginia, and went into what was then becoming the CIA headquarters. They was in the middle at that time, moving from downtown Washington, D.C., out to Langley, and, uh, and they was in the process of building their new CIA headquarters where it is today. So, so did he tell you where you were going? He told me that we was at the CIA headquarters, and after meeting a, a, a gentleman behind the desk that night at the, in the administration building, he told me that we were at the CIA headquarters, but uh, I was not a CIA agent by any means, and it, uh, I probably never would be. But uh, they was there to give me some training and, uh, and to proceed with uh, what was going on. And that was the very beginning of the, the, the number of my book, 204. Uh, I was assigned a bedroom that night, a uh, private bedroom in, in the facility, and it was room number 204. Told me that uh, uh, to make myself at home, told me where the cafeteria was, open 24-7, and, uh, uh, but just to not to be asking any questions or in being inquisitive to people that people really didn't care about me or who I was or where I came from, and uh, just kind of behave myself and to be ready to start uh, some proceedings on Monday morning. What kind of training did they put you through? We went through, Tom, a lot of just, just, just recognition of knowing what you see and when you, when you see it to remember it and recognize any changes that takes place uh, from one day to the next, from one hour to the next. Uh, we had a lot of one-on-one training where they carried us out into the different communities in and around Langley, and, uh, and we would notice in what was taking place around certain buildings or courthouses or, or churches or anything and we'd stand and observe and watch, and then we'd go back in a few hours to see if we could recognize as an individual any changes that was made. Uh, we went from uh, <clears throat> from day to day. We trained there about four weeks 
uh, doing the same thing day in and day out. It was a group of seven of us that was uh, started that training. I don't know why it was seven. Uh, nothing significant to me. Uh, but anyway, it was always in my classes I went through, it was always seven in the training. We stayed there four weeks, and, and it went through a very intensive recognition and remembering what you see and, 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 and relate that to anything, whether it be words or scenes or colors or whatever it might be. Uh, and that proved to help me an awful lot further into my training and my duties. It was around that time that you learned that you were going to be part of a brand new agency begun by President Truman called the National Security Agency, which is obviously still in existence today. What was the purpose of that agency? How did it differ from, say, the FBI or the CIA? We were, uh, went into different trainings. We was moved from Langley, Virginia, CIA headquarters, to uh, Ben Hill Ben Hill Farms, Virginia, just a short uh, distance away, and we went through a Another eight weeks of training there, uh, very intense training on, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, very intense training on everything that, that, that took place. It was the most mental, harrowing thing I think anybody could endure, uh, from hypnotism to everything else. It, it, we were just stressed to a point from one hour to the next. It went on for eight weeks, 24 hours a day. Seven days a week, not a break. Uh, sometimes we would be released. And by the way, uh, when we I reported to Ben Hill Farms, my uh, my room there, my bedroom, was room number 204 again. So here begins my story a little bit with the reason I named the book 204. Right. Uh, we would go back to our room and, and stay maybe 15 minutes, not knowing how long it might be, 20 minutes, an hour, and would be called right back out to classes and more stressful mental mental training and uh it sometimes three hours i think was the most that i ever uh was released to go back to a bedroom to get some sleep during that eight week period of time uh so they're trying to test you absolutely see what your limits are yeah i think to just even see if you broke you know if you would just break mentally under the stress of the training out of the seven people in your class, do you have any idea how many people got through it or how many people didn't get through it? Well, uh, after we completed our, our training there at Ben Hill Farms, we were uh, broken up in, into into different training sessions. Uh, two of the young men went to Fort Devens, Massachusetts, to radio school. Uh, two of them was going to stay right there at Ben Hill Farms for a, a cryptographic school. That's a... a thing of coding and decoding messages uh, that I really loved, and I got into that a little bit later. Uh, two of them went to Monterey, California, to language school, and those two people, Tom, I, I'd never heard of after we broke up and went there. Uh, I know they probably got into uh, interpretations and languages and all that that uh, that I encountered some other people with. So, uh, And then I myself, uh, by myself, went to uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia, which is Camp Gordon, Georgia, which is now Fort Gordon, Georgia, and I went to radio school. Uh, I was told when I went down there to, again, uh, to not to be inquisitive about me or not to get too private with anybody, uh, strictly to go through school and, and, uh, and I would be brought back to Ben Hill Farms. 
After an eventful trip to the NSA headquarters in Frankfurt, Germany, you were given money and told to go shopping and buy civilian clothes. And within a few days, you were sent to SHAPE headquarters in Paris. What was SHAPE and what was your role to be there? SHAPE was uh, was just a, a name for the Supreme Headquarters, Allied Powers, Europe. And that was the, the headquarters of, of all the NATO nations that was taking place during this period of time in the Cold War. And uh, it was a, a big complex. I, I compared it somewhat to the to the Pentagon today with all the different hallways and, and different uh, areas of the Pentagon. But all the NATO, NATO excuse me, all the NATO nations had uh, their own headquarters located there in different sections of the building. And within that United States section was the NSA. Uh, we didn't call it headquarters. It's the NSA station. And there I, I, I was, when I was reported there, I reported to a, who was an ex-CIA agent himself. He was the chief of the station and was uh, one fine man, I tell you. One, one, of the, group. one of the things that really surprised me is that some of your missions, a good many of them, it seems like from the book, your job was to spy not on enemy nations, but on our allies as well. That's that's correct. So in 1953, you were sent on three missions to Malta, which was then a, a British protectorate. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were you tasked with doing in Malta? We were tasked with, with gathering all kind of communication uh, information from the British government. Uh, <clears throat> uh, spying, yes. It was spying on our friends and our neighbors, somewhat different when you think of a spy spying on something else. But this was... Strictly, we were spying on our friends and neighbors. Uh, we had, I was always in, in civilian clothes, uh, posing as a, a civilian instructor to the radio operators and the, and the cryptographic operators that we had on our, on our mission. And they was working hand-in-hand hand with the British sailors there on the island of Malta. Uh, I had a lot of free time and a lot of opportunity to to observe and see what was going on within their communication systems and gather frequencies and times of the stations that they changed from one frequency to another, uh, even gathered uh, of some of the codes that they had that they put into their cryptographic machines. Uh, uh, and then, of course, I communicated, brought that uh, information back to the headquarters at Shape Headquarters when our mission was over. <laughs> On one of your Malta trips, a British battleship was docked, and you went to work. Uh, tell us how you were able to capture perhaps the first encryption machine for the United States from a NATO country. I had, um, <clears throat> on all our missions, uh, a person that I always, I kind of called him my shatter, someone that was familiar with the area, familiar with the languages, familiar with what was going on within the area. Uh, sometimes I saw that person... Every day, sometimes I hardly needed them, and I didn't have to encounter them. But I was informed that there was a British battleship that docked in the harbor of Malta, and that the British sailors was having their holidays. And there was a lot of them uh, in Valletta. That was the capital of Malta. And, uh, and I made it my business to get to know some of those British sailors. And I encountered one of them that I found out that worked aboard the communication systems on that battleship. So I, I took advantage of that young man. Uh, I say young man, he was, he was my age, maybe a little bit, <laughs> a little older maybe. But anyway, 
uh, he had an alcohol problem, and I realized that, and I took advantage of him and found out a lot of information that went on. I <clears throat> knew him, and I found out that I told him I'd like to have a British uh, crypto machine, and he said, well, uh, what do you think it might be worth to you? And I said, well, maybe $500. And he said, well, i tell you what, friend, if you got $500, I could probably get you two of them. <laughs> so uh, sure enough, the next night, uh, I was staying in the same hotel in Valletta that a lot of the British sailors were. So uh, he brought me a crypto machine uh, there. And immediately on receiving that machine, uh, I, I, I realized I knew what I had in my hand. And I made a quick trip to the airport that, that night. Uh, but I was not able to get off the island. There was no more flights off the island that night. And uh, I stayed overnight, got a plane out uh, from Malta the next morning early uh, on the way to, back to Paris. And I went, went from Malta to Rome to Paris. And uh, <clears throat> about a few minutes into the flight, I realized we were not really going anywhere, that we was just kind of circling the island. And then we got a message from the pilot that uh, they had plane problems, had electrical problems on the plane, and just to be patient that we might have to go back for a landing. And immediately, uh, within my own mind, I, I felt like, well, it really wasn't an electrical problem on that plane. What was the problem was the crypto machine that belonged to the British government that I had under my seat. And, uh, and I really became scared. For the first time in my service, I was really uh, afraid of what might be going to happen, that I could only imagine what was going to take place if I was taken into custody with a British... Uh, with a might say not a stolen but it was a stolen cryptographic machine that the British sailor had gotten for me and uh, and all the implications that would take place um, but uh, as it, we turned out it was an electrical problem on the plane they could not get the landing gears down and we made a crash landing on the island uh, a little bit later that day and uh, uh, as we was coming in for a landing I could look up and see this as we made a hard bump without the wheels on that plane uh, I could see sparks and all flying down the whole right side of the plane and suddenly the plane was on fire from one end to the other uh, 14 of us 14 passengers aboard that plane and and I we all got off safely uh, had a quite an encounter for the next few hours trying to get myself off and they said that we could not leave that we was going to have to go through a lot of uh, interrogation concerning the crash and I uh, uh, sat down and I wrote a, a note to the gentleman there at the Malta airport asking him to be released that I would release the British European Airways of any uh, implications or anything concerning the crash but I had to return to Paris for my for duty and uh, after some few hours he told me that I was free to go and I returned to Paris with the first stolen British cryptographic machine uh, in the history of the United States, I think, and turned it over <laughs> to my superiors in Shape Headquarters. Uh, that's a movie, just right there, that, that one story alone. But we've got more to come, uh, more incredible stories coming up next on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. This is Jim Ross, and you are listening to Front Porch Radio, WKOM 101.7, located in Columbia, Tennessee. 
Hi, I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hosts for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen, meat, and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand-cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Are you new to Murray County? We want to welcome you and your family. We are a local residential garbage service, and we want to be your garbage man. We've been around for over 30 years, so we have a reputation. Check us out at garbagemaninc.com or call Mike at 931-540-0919. You could also ask your neighbor. 931-540-0919. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. Hello, my name is Connor Mims. My wife Bradley and I live in Columbia, Tennessee in Riverside. I am a deck and porch builder and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. Give us a call today from our website, MimsModernLandscape.com. That's MimsModernLandscape.com and check out what we have to offer. Thanks. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking to Mr. Robert Jones, who was a spy during the Cold War. Uh, Mr. Jones, you mentioned in your book that you took part in missions all over Europe. You mentioned Germany, Belgium, Denmark, Italy, Greece, France, Scotland, Finland, Norway, (laughs) Turkey. You're spying... On all those countries? Yes, all our NATO nations, pretty much, Tom. Uh, anywhere where there was maneuvers uh, going on within the NATO countries, uh, we covered them. And we worked in the communications with that with the government. If we was in, uh, uh, like we talked a while ago, in Malta, we worked with the British government. If we was in Turkey, we worked with the British, I mean, with the Turkish uh, army. 
And if we was in Denmark, we was working with the uh, Danish Air Force. Uh, so, yes, we, we covered a lot of maneuvers. And during that period of time of the Cold War, there was a lot of maneuvers going on jointly within the NATO nations. And we tried to cover those communications with our radio operators that was working our own frequencies and our crypto operators. Uh, and again, I was posing as a civilian instructor to all those, which gave me the freedom and opportunity to to gather uh, gather off of information on my own and, uh, and and expire on it. On one of the trips uh, in 1953, uh, late 53, I had been uh, released and, and was able to come back to the United States uh, briefly. Uh, I was married after being home seven days and and uh but then i was married on the december the 30th on january the 6th i received orders to return to shape headquarters which i left that very day from the nashville airport and flew back to paris um once there my chief of the station uh again he was an ex-cia agent uh informed our group that we was going to denmark to carp denmark uh, a Danish Air Force base there, and <clears throat> and we had uh, suspicion that the chief of the communication system was acting as a double agent for the Russians and and within the Danish Air Force he was a colonel, and uh, it was my mission, my personal mission, to see what I could find out about this gentleman and, and try to uh, know for fact what was going on within his duties, and. Uh, so we reported just outside of Copenhagen uh, to Air, uh, Air Force, Danish Air Force Base. And <clears throat> about the third day there, uh, I was talking with this Danish colonel. Uh, he spoke fluent uh, uh, Russian and English, plus his own native language of, of Danish. And <clears throat> we was looking at the cryptographic operators, the Danish and Americans working side by side. And I just kind of casually mentioned to him, I said, gee, I would sure love to get my hands on a Russian uh, crypto machine to kind of have some comparison of what, what we know about it and what they know about it. And uh, he, he made no comment, just acted like he didn't even hear what I was hardly saying. So that was just an off-the-cuff comment for you. That was going to yeah. be my question. So that, I knew right. you were sort of developing this relationship yeah. with this Danish colonel, and I was wondering, how do you get to the sentence, hey, I'd like to get one of those yeah. Russian It was just kind of an off-the-cuff off <laughs> comment that I thought I was kind of leading him into something. Uh, but it seemed like he just kind of fell on the floor where nothing happened. But about two days later, he uh, he came back to me and he said, gee, fella, he said, uh, uh, with a broken English accent somewhat, he said, uh, were you really serious when you said you would love to have a Russian crypto machine? And I said, yeah, I, I sure would. I, I, I'd just like to be able to compare it and, and, and find out what I could and study it over it. And he said, well... I tell you, he said, that this might could be arranged. He said, uh, if you're interested in it, he said, but I'll tell you, it's going to cost you some money. And I said, well, uh, if you could arrange something like that, I said, uh, get back with me and let me know. I said, I don't know if I have enough money or not, but uh, whatever, uh, let me know what, what might what might we, we could work out. So again, in another couple of days, he come back and he said, gee, he said, uh, that crypto machine you was interested in, he said, we could make that happen. And I, I said, well, that's, that'd be great. And he said, but uh, it's going to cost you 
probably $15,000. Well, I said, well, I, I don't know about that. I said, I'd have to find out. And this is one of the first mistakes I had, uh, I had made since I had been in the, uh, uh, the spy business with the, with NASA, with NSA. But <clears throat> I told him that I would have to talk to my chief. So in saying those few words, I'd have to talk to my chief. I revealed myself as, as something more than just a, a, a sergeant in the American communications. And, uh, and, of course, I knew at that time he picked up on it. But I, I did. Did go, that make you nervous? Did that sort of want to yeah, yeah, make did. you back away a little bit? It or? did, Tom. Uh, uh, I didn't want to, to, to back away from, from anything, but I knew I had made a mistake. But uh, <clears throat> I went that, that very day to the embassy in, in, in Copenhagen, and, uh, and I began to talk to my chief back and forth with, on, with Morse code, uh, sending messages back and forth. And at that time, you know, you couldn't reach out with Morse code around the world like you can communications today. You'd, you'd go two or 250 miles, and, and your message would be received at one station and passed on. But anyway, in my communications from, from Copenhagen down to Paris, France, uh, talking to my chief, he uh, told me, give me the go-ahead. And he said, but try to get it a little bit cheaper if you could. And I couldn't imagine, you know, our government uh, <laughs> spilling over a difference of fifteen or ten or $15,000. That's government uh, work right there. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was working for, for, him, for his big boss, too, I guess. But anyway, uh, I got back with the Danish colonel and, uh, and told him that what we would do. And he said, gee, he said, uh, I'll find out what goes on. He said, you know, uh, this was a double thing working for them. Uh, they had a, 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 a Russian major that was in charge of their communication center in Berlin. And they suspected him of acting as a double agent, a traitor to their own country, Russia. And he <clears throat> got with him and, and worked out a deal that we was going to exchange. And we, we, I did get the money down. We went from 15000 down to $10,000 is what we agreed to pay for it. And uh, doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but in in in, in today's world, that uh, that ten thousand dollars would be equivalent to about ninety thousand dollars that we was paying for that machine in today's money. Uh, <clears throat> so we made arrangements to set up and 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 do it. They wanted to tell us when they would make the exchange and where and the time, and uh, and I talked with the CIA agent that I was was working with he had been assigned to me to help me to get through this what we was doing and uh he said no no we're not going to do that if we make any exchange it'll be on our grounds it'll be we'll set the place and the time and the area that we're going to make the exchange so uh, they agreed to that and we agreed that we would meet in in hamburg germany on a certain day at a certain hotel at a certain time and we moved on from there and in just a couple of days we uh uh, a CIA agent, myself, I thought we would travel there about a five-hour car trip, five, six hours uh, that day. And he said, no, we'll have to go early. We're going to go early. We'll get our bed made, and we'll know what's going on. And anything, if any been a trap set, we'll find out about it before they get there. I'm going to so, stop you right there okay, in the midst of this incredible story. Okay. We need to take one more break. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. 
History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Do you have trees that need trimming or removed? Do you have stumps that you want ground? A1 Tree Removal is a family-owned and operated business local to Columbia and Lewisburg and servicing surrounding Middle Tennessee. They are licensed and insured and provide free estimates. No job is too big, no tree is too small. Give old Luke a call or text Luke at 931-359-3113 or you can check them out on Facebook and tell A1 Tree Removal that you heard this ad on the radio. If you love America, you will love A1 Tree Removal. This is Trip Stoltz, owner and manager at Columbia Ace Hardware. We have changed our store hours to better serve our community. Columbia Ace Hardware is now open from 7 to 7, Monday through Friday, from 8 to 4 on Saturday, and closed on Sunday. Come see us at 112 East James Campbell Boulevard and let us show you customer service that can only be found at Columbia Ace Hardware. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. I am Jack Blackstone. And I'm Emery Blackstone. Together, we are Greenway Tech Repair. Tired of slow computers, cracked phone screens, and fancy home electronics you don't know how to use? We can help. We provide local on-site services as well as remote troubleshooting for any job, no matter how large or small, from computers and laptops to mobile devices and home electronics. We Blackstone Brothers are eager to serve our community. Find us on Facebook at Greenway Tech Repair or by phone at 931-388-2691. That's on Facebook at Greenway Tech Repair or by phone at 931-388-2691. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. We're in the middle of an incredible story where Mr. Bob Jones has made an arrangement, is making a deal uh, to acquire a a Soviet uh, cryptographic machine. So we are in Germany uh, in a hotel. And how is this exchange going to happen? Uh, Tom, uh, we made our rendezvous in a hotel in Hamburg, Germany. Uh, and again, when I uh, registered into the hotel, I was assigned my room number there again was 204. Kind of a little bit spooky, I guess, but this number keeps popping up in my life. Uh, but I went up to the room and, and, uh, and checked it all out. Uh, a little bit later, I met with a CIA agent that was going to meet with me that morning. And uh, he went up to the room with me, and and then he said, "Now this this will work out." It was a very ordinary room, uh, just a bed and a chest and one chair, as I remember in the room, uh, just a, a, a curtain over a bathroom and a curtain over a closet door. And uh, we went back down, and I was supposed to meet with the uh, Russian major that was coming from Berlin with this cryptographic machine. And uh, <clears throat> once I saw him out on the street, I was looking outside the hotel, kind of observing and watching and going back to some of my previous training, just seeing anything uh, out of the ordinary that might be going on. Uh, I saw him. He appeared to be doing the same thing, but we did meet in the hotel a little bit later, about 1 o'clock that day, and uh, I, when he came in, I didn't first go up to him. I wanted to make sure that it wasn't anybody following him, and he was indeed by himself. Uh, we went up to the room, 204, and went into the room, and I remember distinctly locking the door behind me. It was cold. This was in February. Uh, I took my top coat off and folded it and kind of laid it across the corner of the bed, and uh, he laid the Russian cryptographic machine out on the bed, and I knew immediately what it was. And I thought, oh, boy, Bobby, you have hit a home run here. Uh, 
and he began to take it out of the package. And then suddenly the door to our bedroom, uh, room 204, uh, burst open and in walked. At that time, I thought two of the biggest men I ever seen in my life. I knew immediately that what was beginning to take place, I knew that that was two of the uh, Russian KGB officers, and uh, uh, <clears throat> they began to take charge. Uh, after a little bit of communication and talking among themselves between the Russian major and the two CI, uh, Russian KGB officers, uh, they began to shove him back and forth between themselves and, and it began to get a little, rough him up a little bit. And I noticed immediately that one of them had a pistol in his hand and the other one had a long knife, must have been 12, 14 inch blade. And uh, within moments, I, I knew that, you know, my life was short lived. Uh, I didn't know what was going to take place. I knew what was going to take place. I did, just didn't know how quick. And again, the CIA agent that was watching after me was hidden in the closet behind the curtain. And uh, <clears throat> it, within five, six, seven seconds, they, the Russian KGB officers had completely decapitated the, the Russian major. They shoved his body over against me and his head rolled on the floor. Uh, good blood was rushing everywhere and <clears throat> then I heard gunfire begin to go and uh, one of the KGB officers fell against the wall and the other one fell forward and uh, this was uh, my CIA agent that was uh, taking charge and he had stepped up and, and suddenly he came out from that closet and I knew immediately that he had been wounded uh, he was losing blood profusely and he fell to his knees and fell across the corner of the bed where my top coat was, he was laying right on top of my top coat. I went to my knees and fell. I said, are you okay? Of course, I, I knew he wasn't okay. He said, finish the mission, finish the mission, and he and he died right there. Uh, so I was left in the room by myself with uh, four dead men, uh, two of them Russian KGB, the Russian uh, major that was a... a a traitor to his own country that's selling that machine to me. And uh, I, I gathered up the machine, folded it up, got my top coat, and left the room immediately and went down onto the street of Hamburg. We had previously planned to uh, <clears throat> to travel, the CIA agent and I, to Frankfurt, Germany, to the uh, NSA headquarters there. Going back to the station that I had previously started out my, 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 my duty with. And... Um, I had no idea how I was going to get out of Hamburg, how I was going to travel. Uh, I began to ask questions on the street, and when people would see me, when I would try to approach them, they would just holler and scream and get away from me quickly. I didn't understand why. Uh, I, I tried to get into a taxi cab. Uh, when he saw the condition I was in, he drove off immediately. But then I realized that, gee, you know, money may talk, and I had a pocket full of it. I had 10 thousand dollars in my pocket that i was going to exchange for that machine and uh so i reached down in my pocket and within that pocket i pulled out a key that was to the, the key on a wooden thing that went to the to the room 204 uh and then when i pulled my hand out of a, my top coat pocket it was just covered and sticky with, with with blood all over me and all over everything so that's why people were looking at you in that manner you were covered in in blood yes i was i i didn't realize how much i had over me it was all over me my face and my hands and my coat mr bob were and, you armed did you uh, have a gun? no no i was never armed and uh <clears throat> so i, I took pulled out uh 
a couple of hundred dollar bills out of another envelope that was not uh, that was in my suit coat pocket, and I went to another taxi cab sitting on the street, and I offered them a hundred dollars. I just I didn't speak, of course, any German, and I just said Frankfurt, Frankfurt, and I showed him a hundred dollar bill. Uh, the taxi cab driver looked a little interested. He, he nodded his head, but he held up two fingers, and I knew immediately that he wanted two hundred dollars. So uh, I, I said okay, and I made it known that. One now and, and another one in Frankfurt. So uh, I got in the cab and away we went. At that time, my life was dependent on him to get me out of Frank, get me out of Hamburg and to Frankfurt, Germany. So we drove all night long uh, to get into get into Frankfurt. It was late that night when we arrived at the United States Army headquarters, where the I, where I thought the the NSA headquarters was. It was at the time I first got there on Christmas, day after Christmas, 1952. Uh, but it had been moved, un- not, to my knowings. And uh, when we arrived there, uh, <clears throat> I had a hard time communicating with some uh, military police at the front gate of the headquarters because they didn't know who I was. I had no identification. I had no passport. I had nothing to identify myself. So they... uh tried to just hustle me off and I just kept insisting and insisting uh, to let me talk to the officer of the day which they did and he wasn't too interested in me either but finally I said please please just let me just make one phone call to the NSA headquarters here in, in Frankfurt and uh, uh, you, you'll get find out what's going on because they was expecting me that night to report to them uh, so he did make that phone call and in five minutes uh a car pulled up. Two men got out. One of them was an NSA agent uh, that was I first met when I first got got to Germany, uh, and he hugged me like like a long lost son. Uh, I cried on his shoulder that night. Uh, I was so devastated. Been some long days, and I was really messed up. And uh, but he carried me back to his headquarters. He got got me uh, a change of clothes, made arrangements for me to to bathe and clean myself up and give me something to eat. And he said, now, Bob, he said, we're not going to stay here. Uh, we're going to move on. Uh, we got to get to Paris. We're not going to stay here. And, and the, the KGB will not let this go by because they have lost the first battle. And he said, we've got to get out of, out of Frankfurt and, and get this machine to shape headquarters in Paris. So, uh, again, we traveled all night. The machine went in one car, and we went in a different car, so we wouldn't be couldn't be tied together. Uh, again, an all-night trip from there to Paris and, and back to Shape headquarters. It's an absolute incredible story. You're a hero, Mister Bob. I mean, what what you did uh, for this country is absolutely amazing. And again, this is. This is the mid-1950s, 1953, 1954. We're at the height of the Cold War at this point, and, and that's the war gathering intelligence uh, as the United States and the Soviet Union are, are vying for global dominance. You're, you're the spear tip, really, uh, in, in this war. You have so many more stories, which unfortunately we're going to run out of time to be able to, to cover. Uh, again, your book called Room 204, Story of a Cold War Spy – 
uh, is not currently available. People are welcome to come to the archives where we have a copy uh, at the Murray County Archives. You can come in and read the book, and it's not a long book. You can read it in an afternoon, and you would be a better person for it. It's an incredible story. Quickly, what did you do in your civilian life? You got out of the military. Your enlistment was up in 1955. The NSA asked you to asked you to stay, and you decided to go home instead. I decided to go home instead, uh, <clears throat> which I did. And it was a uh, I worked with Union Carbide here in Columbia, uh, 37 years. Uh, and when I left there, I was a production superintendent of the plant. And uh, 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 a couple of weeks, Miss Charlotte Battles asked me if I could come up to the King's Auto School and, and help them out on a problem. And uh, it took me 14 years to get away from there. And Tom, I have to tell you, that was the happiest years of my life, being spent time there at the King's Auto School here in Columbia with their clients and all the people there. It was a great experience for me. One last question. You told nobody about your military career, not even your wife, until when? How many years elapsed before you told this story? Tom, I went uh, 62 years with a secret bottled up in my heart, and I couldn't. I was sworn to that secrecy for 15 years when I returned to civilian life. Uh, But from that point on, no, I, I just couldn't talk about it. There were so many other harrowing experiences that had taken place also. Uh, but it just I just couldn't bring myself to talk about it. My wife, my children, nobody knew anything about it until I spoke to a veterans tribute at First Methodist Church one night about three years ago, and, uh, and I revealed my story then. Um, Mr. Bob, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for your service to our country. It's, it's much appreciated. On behalf of Dr. Barry Gidcombe, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time. This is Clayton Harris, and you're listening to 101.7 WKOM, Columbia. Yeah, I just want to say that your show is disgusting. Two white men and a white woman attacking a black man who's a Democrat, yet you have no balance to anything that you say. You act like a bunch of Southern... You are ridiculous. You're a horrible show. You're a horrible representation of Tennessee. Y'all are disgusting. You're disgusting human beings. And either balance it out with someone who has a half a clue what they can talk about. You got a bus driver up there acting like he's better than him just because of what? I have no idea what his points are other than what Tucker Carlson told him what to say. Y'all are disgusting human beings. You need to get off the Three Dudes with a View, triggering liberals between Dollywood and Graceland, Monday through Thursday from 8 to 9 a.m., right here on WKOM, 101.7 FM. 
Coach, baseball is back, and WKRM 103.7 is excited to bring you coverage and sponsorship options for this 2023 season. That's right, Taff, and this year our advertising partners had the option to sponsor our live Little League coverage, Atlanta Braves coverage, or a combo package that carry both of them. This area loves baseball, and what a great way to support the community by helping us bring coverage of our Little League, but also taking a moment to promote local businesses. People are crazy about the Atlanta Braves. Whoa, 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 whoa. There's something special and timeless about baseball radio broadcast. There sure is. So visit Front Porch Radio TN and click on the blue Advertise With Us button for more information about how your company can sponsor baseball of all kinds this season with WKRM. This is Jack Cobb with Murray County Public Schools and the Big Yellow School Bus. You're listening to Front Porch Radio on 101.7 WKOM in Columbia, Tennessee.